Welcome to Talaterra. This is Tanya Marion. This week, we revisit my conversation with Mark and Crystal Mandika, founders of the Amphibian Foundation. When Mark and Crystal launched the foundation in 2016, they had to be creative when it came to supporting themselves when a federal startup grant did not come through for them. Today, they once again find themselves having to fund themselves creatively. After listening to the original episode today, you'll hear the conversation I had with Mark and Crystal earlier this week. There are exciting new updates to share, so be sure to stick around to find out what's new. It is my pleasure to introduce you to Mark and Crystal Mandika. Welcome to Talaterra, a podcast about freelance educators working in natural resource fields and environmental education. Who are these educators? What do they do? Join me, and let's find out together. This is your host, Tanya Marion. Today my guests are Mark and Crystal Mandika, founders of the Amphibian Foundation in Atlanta, Georgia. Mark and Crystal lead educational initiatives that bring attention to the crisis surrounding the global extinction of amphibians. Their programs welcome herpetologists of all ages. How did Mark and Crystal build the Amphibian Foundation to what it is today? What is their philosophy about community building? What is Critter Camp for adults? Let's find out. Mark and Crystal, thank you so much for your time today and for stopping by to talk about the Amphibian Foundation. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Your organization was recommended by a listener, and I went to your website, and there is such a wealth of information on your website. If you followed all the links, I mean, that is really a truly immersive experience and <laughs> and really um, yeah it is and your and your programs are wonderful and so i i wanted to to speak with you you launched this initiative on your own yes yes so i wanted to find out more about this initiative and how it got started of course and what you're what you're doing now you are clearly very dedicated to your mission <laughs> It's just wonderful, I, and, and you show your yeah. work so well. well. We'll talk about that, too. And so uh, what is your earliest memory of enjoying nature? Well, I think I have um, an earlier idea of what nature meant to me than Mark does, perhaps. Uh, we were talking about it a little bit, just kind of figuring out how we got started in this love of nature. But um, for me, I grew up, at least in my uh, formative years in New York City. And there isn't a lot of nature necessarily in the city, but there was this one park next to my home that was filled with dandelions. And so I would sit right in the middle of the field and just blow dandelions for, uh, for hours on end almost. <laughs> and I just loved that so much. And that was really the first piece of nature that clicked for me. And Mark, how about you? Oh, uh, well, I have a similar experience in a way because I grew up in New Jersey and I didn't really see any nature. And so for me, it's really frogs were my 
bridge to nature. Like, even though I never saw any growing up, I just always loved frogs. And uh, I would get like gifts of frogs uh, when I was little, like toys that I loved. But uh, I do remember going to Pennsylvania and witnessing my first wild frogs. It was very exciting for me. And you know, at that time, I, I just wanted to take them home, which I, I did. I had, <laughs> I had two frogs and I would force them to sit on my handlebars when I would ride my bike around. But they were really my bridge to really appreciating nature and uh, ecosystems and, and all of that. Oh, that's a wonderful story. <laughs> frogs on the handlebars. <laughs> Except for the frogs. I'm sure they were terrified. <laughs> <laughs> when did you realize nature was important to you, that it required some advocacy? Uh, well, I, it was, uh, I'm sorry to say, much later in life. You know, so I managed to go through my first basically 30 years without understanding that biology was a discipline or that you could investigate frogs and how they worked. And so I had taken a biology class in college, pass-fail, because I was a sociology major. And um, it really opened my eyes. And I just, as soon as I learned that there was so much not understood about amphibians, I wanted to jump right in and start my studies. And only after then did I realize that you know, amphibians were in trouble. And the further I progressed in my studies, the more different ways were being uh, understood about the impacts on amphibians. And, and uh, my trajectory shifted from biology to more conservation and applied sciences and understanding how amphibians fit into a larger system and that they're responding to it very, very negatively. You know, the, oh, so many different components in the environment are impacting amphibians at different levels. And, and then I felt like it was a all hands on deck situation where I, I didn't have the luxury of doing uh, experiments on, on amphibians. I, I needed to get in and, and try to address these declines. It's, it's terrifying. I haven't been at it for very long, but it's harder to find a frog now than it was when I started. You know? And as you know, we have a little boy. It's harder for him to find a frog than it was for me. And that's just very profound. Yeah, I would agree. For me, I think it was even later, I didn't realize what turmoil amphibians were under until I met Mark. And that was when I was 29. And um, it was great. It was very exciting for me to meet Mark and see all of the things that he was passionate about. But I didn't realize that these, these creatures were under such attack until I met him and really got into the, the nitty-gritty of what he was doing. What were your lives before you launched such a like, huge organization? Oh. <laughs> yeah, it was very different. So I was pursuing music as my, my major life goal, and I was, I was a performer. 
basically. I was a singer and songwriter. I would take my guitar and my amp and go out on gigs. And um, I was really just trying to be a performer. But um, I met Mark when I was 29. And uh, he actually offered to record some of my music for me in his home studio. And I couldn't resist because he was so cute. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it just turned out that we had a lot in common. We had music in common. And then it turned out that we had a love of animals in common as well. Mm-hmm. So it just grew from there. Oh, nice. And Mark, what were you? You were then in music too, I suppose, if you had a studio. I did. Um, I had a music studio mostly as a hobby. I do love to record music and play music. And I did use that as a lure to get Crystal <laughs> over. <laughs> but I was at um, graduate I was in graduate school at the time and I met her. I used to grade papers at her coffee shop. Uh, (laughs) That was, she was working in at the time. And uh, it was my other excuse to hang out near her. (laughs) (laughs) But we, um, we got engaged two weeks after we started hanging out. Yep. And then we're married another two weeks after that. Oh, Wow. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We just knew. <laughs> when did you begin the Amphibian Foundation? And what was the impetus? What what made you say, okay, now, now this needs to happen? It's pretty clear because I was managing an, a con- an amphibian conservation program in Atlanta at the Botanical Garden. And the program was closed. So that we had already begun some pretty critical conservation programs. And I didn't, we didn't want it to lose any momentum. So we felt like something had to be done immediately. So we had originally planned to start the Amphibian Foundation in our basement. And we did. We had a, the world's only permit to keep this one very imperiled species, the flatwood salamander. Uh, We still have the only permit that exists to hold that species, but we had them in our basement and it was terrifying. But it was really scary to have these super endangered salamanders in our basement. But pretty soon after that, we got a, a place, and, and that was a huge win and a huge gift to us. It was just a one of our passionate partners had some space to share, and so we moved in there, and now we have them all set up very safely in a lab. So that's how, that's how it started. We only had the program in our basement for a couple of months, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And this was in 2016, correct? That's right. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So you are a, a young organization. This is a young organization that has com- accomplished so much. And when you started the Amphibian Foundation, what elements did you already have in place? What were you already uh, pr- practicing? Your, did your uh, education programs, did some of them exist then? And your partnerships and all that? And how did it develop to what it is today in such a short amount of time? Well, I can speak to a little bit about our educational projects. 
during the time that Mark was still working at the Botanical Garden, we just had this idea of wanting to share our love for animals and the concept of the the need to conserve them. And we had a large amount of animals at home. (laughs) It kind of became one of our hobbies was to collect these really beautiful amphibians and reptiles. And it turned out that through a few conversations with friends that there was a need for amphibians and reptiles to be brought to to schools, basically, to kids. And so what we did was we created Critter Camp. And so that was our first educational initiative. And that was bringing an educational component to kids during the summer. And so it gave them a chance to learn about what amphibians and reptiles actually were, and then actually get a chance to, to touch them and hold them and, uh, and get a chance to see what they're like up close and to develop a real love for them so that they would then turn that love into passion to help to save them. I might also uh, say that, you know, Crystal's really pioneered this critter camp and she's got a real gift uh, connecting with kids about these things. And I don't think that we realized, well, we certainly didn't know we were going to be starting a nonprofit but the Critter Camp really fits perfectly into our mission. I mean, it, it, it serves several purposes. It's, it's gotten very popular. We had 330 campers last summer. Which, I mean, I don't know if that's a lot, but that sounds like a, sounds like a lot. It was a lot know? for us. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it, it helps support the conservation initiatives, which are challenging to fund. And it also is building an army of little conservationists who who appreciate these animals and understand that they need to be protected. You know, so it's really serving our mission perfectly. Mm-hmm. I can only imagine. It, it must be. And your programming is so extensive because you have you have events from critter birthday parties, to field trips, to after-school clubs, to homeschool programs, science illustration internships. You have uh, yeah. school programs, college programs. The Master Herpetologist <laughs> Certificate Program is fantastic. And yeah. uh, you even have Critter Camp for Adults, which you call right. Critters and Cabernet. <laughs> That's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's been really fun to think about different ways to engage with people and and the community has really seemed to value what we're offering because, you know, the, the master herpetologist just was like, I was like, well, I think that would be really cool if we offered a master herpetologist program because as far as I can tell, there's no other one on the planet. And, um, you know, I have so many great colleagues that, that are gifted educators as well. So we have some amazing educators teaching this class and, and the students get a ton out of it and it's very rewarding. And so like, it just had really great luck, but you know, to be honest, it's really the amphibians and reptiles that are selling this for us. You know, mm-hmm. critter camp is a reptile and amphibian summer camp. So obviously kids love it. <laughs> right. And it's really funny because we have run critter camp. This was our fifth year. And um, we just kept getting a lot of feedback from parents saying, hey, I wish there was a critter camp for us. So we kind of listened for a few years and we thought, yeah, you know what? Let's give that a try. 
And what better way to engage with amphibians and reptiles than to add a little bit of wine to it? <laughs> so um, that kind of made it a little bit, a little extra fun for us, for the adults. And so the adults, they're loving this program. We hope so. Yeah. <laughs> well, they keep coming back. So. They keep coming back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that is great. Your master herpetologist program. Mm -hmm. There is, the, of course, the master naturalist program. Did you model it after that program or did you create it in, in an entirely different way? Oh, yes. We, the master naturalist program. And then there's a master birder program here as well. So I kind of um, melded the two. Master naturalist, at least in Atlanta, meets once a month for a year. And the master birder meets every week for eight weeks. So we, we stretch it out medium, but it was certainly based on the um, success and the uh, curriculum of some of these other programs, for sure. And the graduates of the master herpetologist program, what have they done? Have they... Do they help with the foundation or have they initiated their own projects or what? Um, both. So one of our master herpetologists has uh, uh, launched a community science program focusing on snakes in Atlanta called the Urban Kings. Several of our master herpetologists are now volunteering or interning at the foundation. Uh, so that's very rewarding. But we've only been going with that program for a year. So we don't have that, that many certified master herpetologists yet. When you launched your program, as you, as you mentioned, you started in your basement, someone invited you into their space. How did you uh, expand your community from, from that point on? How did you build your community? And what did you decide would be your community building philosophy? Ah, um... That's a great question. Uh, getting the space was key. So that was the Blue Heron Nature Preserve, which is a wonderful spot in, in Atlanta. And we've expanded inside of that building twice already, and we're expanding a third time in, in January. Uh, and a lot of that is because of the community. I mean, when, once we had a space, it's hard to invite the community into your basement. So once we had a, a space, a lot of the people from the botanical garden came, you know, a lot of the partners that we had formed on other conservation projects were in complete support of what we were doing. We, we didn't want to be, uh, we wanted to be able to, pr to prioritize amphibians in a way that isn't, uh, you know, most institutions are not able to, you know, they're. Usually, they're part amphibians are part of a, some other conservation program, and we needed to make them priority one. And really, that was it. Once we had that, we started getting a lot of interest. I was invited by a partner to give a science, uh, science tavern lecture in Atlanta, and almost 100 people came to hear about this new, brand new nonprofit and one of the audience members offered to run our communications program. She's uh, commun in communications at the CDC and just these really gifted, passionate people that wanted to help. And I think we have, we're pushing 90 volunteers and interns right now. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just, we just keep attracting 
we do a lot of public engagement and and that brings people we're very welcoming and inclusive and we, every time we we greet the public we tell the them that there's so many opportunities we need all the help we can get there's unlimited opportunities to get involved whether you want to do a weekly thing or a monthly thing or a random thing we can accommodate all those types of people and it, it seems to work really well right yeah we have found some really passionate people <laughs> that are willing to volunteer their time and uh, we can we couldn't do it without them clearly at this point we couldn't do it without them yeah mm -hmm. you've grown so quickly and what i've noticed by reviewing your, your website and your programs is that you have um, a large, well, a large staff, or, or I mean, already, I mean, a large group of people who work with you. And, and I count, I counted, I had to count because it was just <laughs> so wild to me that you started with the two of you. And now the leadership team is comprised of, composed of three people. You have a staff of four, a collections team of 15, a communications team of nine, the Atlanta Amphibian monitoring team of three, four mm -hmm. interns, seven board of directors, five people on your scientific advisory board. And those people range from local, you know, Atlanta, South Carolina, from the States all the way out to Manchester, England, mm -hmm. and partnerships with 53 partners yes. and, and, a, and a statement, you know, about, about your partnerships, which is presented beautifully. Oh, thank you. How did you develop that many partnerships in such a short amount of time? Every single one of these conservation initiatives is dependent on partnerships and collaborations, and none of them will work just solo. Uh, and that's really important. And the outpouring of support that we've gotten from the amphibian conservation community has been tremendous, really, you know, and we do a lot of communication, like engagement locally, but also the communications team that you referenced of nine people, they're pushing the message out, uh, that same inclusive, welcoming, critical messaging goes out every day as well with that same you know if you want to help conserve amph amphibians let's let's do it you know um and i think that's really served us well mm -hmm. so and it's important to mention that you know these are none of those partnerships are just in name only like we're actively working with these people and it's it's very gratifying mm -hmm. yeah no exactly and that that message comes through because you've put it, you've put that one sentence, you know, descriptor about how you work with that particular organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. You show your work very well on your website. And, Thank you. I mean, it, it's really impressive. I do have to say that Mark actually created the website. He is a very gifted person in many ways. So that's one way that he uh, shines. And it was really just a labor of love for him. And kind of like we kind of mapped it out all together, trying to say what it was that we wanted to convey to the public. And basically, he went to work and he said, we have these many things that we need to let people know about. And, and he did it. He's amazing. Mm -hmm. He's great at web design. 
You've also written a lot of articles, uh, Mark. When you write for a general audience and communicate to a general audience, what messages do you feel resonates with with people? Oh, um, you know, I'm still with the general audience, finding that the majority of people aren't aware that amphibians are declining or that they're disappearing, or worse, they're already extinct. I've tried to work on different ways to get people engaged that one uh, doesn't make to turn them off or make them feel hopeless or, you know, feel like I'm, some people just flat out don't believe it. You know, there's a lot of that as well. So it's really challenging to find the, the right balance, you know, when we're, because there are at least a dozen documented causes for amphibian declines and it's pretty bleak, you know, so you have to convey that with some positivity as well. And also you're telling people some things that they don't want to hear. What are some of the causes for amphibian decline? There's uh, habitat loss is the number one, you know, so there a lot of times even subtle changes to their uh, habitat will make it no longer suitable for them. So that can affect animals in developed areas, but also amphibians from pristine areas are being impacted by diseases that humans have inadvertently moved around into habitats where the amphibians had never seen that particular disease before. So it can have a very significant impact. There's several fungal pathogens that are devastating to amphibians worldwide. The one that people really don't want to hear about is uh, the hundreds of millions of frogs that are killed every year by cats. You know, uh, outdoor cats are just devastating amphibians and and that's you know that's that can get very touchy so a lot of times we we team up with the uh our audubon society neighbors that share the facility with us and about messaging because birds are also really suffering from from outdoor pet and feral cats you know hundreds of millions is is not a sustainable number of of amphibians so I would say the the other the fourth cause that I'd like to bring up is is climate. The species that we're working on really breed in, in very shallow ephemeral wetlands and are very dependent on somewhat predictable weather patterns and that's getting less and less hard to predict. We've we've had endangered uh, salamanders out in the wild that have been drying out, you know, or they're not getting the rain at the times that they naturally would have for the last several years. It only seems to be getting worse. It makes it harder when you're trying to uh, build conservation programs for these species. Like, how do you take that into consideration as you move forward? Mm -hmm. um, and there are others, but those are the four that came to my head first. Yeah, 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 no. Yep. And I read an article where you were interviewed about the impact of Hurricane Michael That's right. on, on the salamanders. And yeah. your impulse, you mentioned in the article, your impulse was to go down and collect, <laughs> collect some salamanders before the hurricane yeah. got there. How do you manage that conservation under those types of conditions? Well, yeah, it, <laughs> the, 
that salamander is is our highest priority. That's the flatwood salamander, and that's our logo is a flatwood salamander, and that's the species we had in our basement. And it that St. Mark's that suffered that direct hit from Hurricane Michael, that's the last place that has significant numbers of that species. And we're basically not even considering that area for conservation. We're, we're, when we discuss where to release animals, we're basically trying to move them more inland. So St. Mark's will probably be inhabit, uninhabitable before too long. And it's the last stronghold for that species. So it's really, really challenging where we're predict, uh, trying to predict where that will be above water in the future in 50 or 100 years and focusing on those areas for conservation. Your efforts involve the immediate area you're in Atlanta, mm-hmm. right, in, in Georgia. And do you get involved with efforts in other states as well, in, in some way, shape, or form? Or are you primarily focused in your region? At first, we were just trying to keep it as wide as possible. And at, at three years, what it seems like now is we would be best serving the, the amphibians if we kept our focus in the southeast not necessarily Georgia. We definitely work in Florida and South Carolina. And we are in talks now to expand into Alabama. (laughs) But there are so many imperiled species here in the Southeast, and we're kind of primely located to focus on those. And that seems where we're most needed right now. Mm -hmm. As your organization has grown and you've become involved with so many different partners and so many different projects, what have you found works best for you? You just mentioned that you are focusing more your efforts in a particular area, but what, what else have you learned throughout this, this process of very rapid growth and significant impact that you have? Hmm. What have we learned? I mean, That's a tough one. It is a tough one, <laughs> but, you know, we, we believe firmly in being inclusive and I, th- I think that is shown in the types of people that we attract to volunteer with us and also in our partner base. And I think that that probably the most important thing right now is this that we are really wide open and you know, we get really, we've been able to attract uh, uh, so many great partners and interns and volunteers and students and staff people. Everyone's so great. (laughs) Yeah. I think we've also learned that people actually like to see what we're doing. And uh, we are generally not open to the public for people to visit. But there are certain times of year, probably about twice a year, that we invite the public to come into our labs in our space to see what we do. We've just really received an outpouring of interest and people you know, being really excited when they come to our labs to see what we're all about and and meet the animals that we're working with. Because it's actually true, these animals all have their own personalities and and the community is able to see that when they visit us. And we're really proud of that. You have so many partners. How did you establish trust with 
those partners initially because you know in the beginning you are an unknown entity you are for all they know two very enthusiastic you know, naturalists and <laughs> so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how did you establish trust with them and how long did it take to earn their trust and their confidence in general mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um we're we're pretty trusting people and for some of these relationships not a great deal of trust was needed at the outset and so depending on each relationship we could afford different levels of trust a lot of our partners are state and federal governments so take that for what it's worth i mean <laughs> the individual people are amazing but it's hard to put a lot of trust in in certain governmental agencies where some decisions are out of their control you know we started the foundation what what gave us the courage at the outset was a promise for a federal startup grant that did not come for example and so that's a a mixed bag because you know we had the courage to start which we wouldn't have had and because that that money did not come through or it came through years later we had to get creative with funding ourselves we didn't want to have to be beholden or or needing uh, to rely on grants that even if the intention was there sometimes it's hard to provide money and you know in the grand scheme the conservation of salamanders is not a high priority for most people most federal agencies you know so we are developing a model where we can ensure that we have the resources we need to to fund these programs and and somehow it's worked out uh for three and a half years i should mention crystal and i have not been paid we are volunteers <laughs> you know it's an elaborate hobby right now is what we're doing is the amphibian foundation then a i don't want to call it a side project because it's a lot more than that I hear what you're saying. It it's its own thing because it's all I do. There's nothing else. But it is not uh I don't know how to explain that. There's there's been specific times where I have been uh paid for my specific task, but mm-hmm. I haven't been able to take yeah. a yeah. paycheck yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so your freelance, your career then as as freelance educators, as independent professionals has been since 2016 then. Right. Yeah. A little yeah. bit earlier for Crystal with the Critter Camp. You know, that started sooner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, a lot of it is just a lot of hoping and trying to prepare as much as we can, trying to put through grants. And then just looking for any opportunity to come out and, and talk to people and hopefully get a little bit of interest in what we're doing. And then hopefully that leads to some donations from, from <laughs> our, our community. Where can people find you on the web? The website that you were so kind about is uh, amphibianfoundation.org. And then we are on on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook as well. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and we're pretty responsive if, if someone reaches out to us. Mm-hmm. And are you on YouTube as well? Besides so, your you. I'll, yeah, <laughs> a, a little bit. You know, we have a few videos, but we're trying to figure out the best way to, to uh, get more videos out there because I think that's an important avenue that we haven't really taken advantage of yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, they would be a fantastic compliment to your already fantastic website. Oh, thank you. I think you've done a great job, and I spent spent a lot of time on your website <laughs> and learned so so many different things. What do you feel people need to know about amphibians that they don't know? Oh, yeah, that's a great question because we uh, we talked about that quite a bit. One thing that we have is a growing online resource for things you can do to make a difference for amphibians. And, uh, and a lot of times it involves making, maybe ba- making your yard more amphibian friendly. You know, and that can be very important when you're talking about animals with a really small home range. You know, you never know if your yard is going to make a difference in connecting to other amphibian populations. You know, and So all these little networks can be really crucial for them. And we've been putting together a resource online for years about different things that people can do at home for amphibians. And there's also, no matter where anybody is, there's ways to to get involved with the amphibian community at large through community science. So we've have a, a very comprehensive community science program here in Atlanta the Metro Atlanta Amphibian Monitoring Program. And so I kind of boast about that because most other community science programs don't also include salamanders. They're, they're usually frog call based because frogs are very cooperative in that they're you know, singing at night and salamanders are silent. So they're a little harder to find. So we train people how to survey for salamanders and, and try to inspire them to get out there. But no matter where you are, there is a frog watch program that, that you can either join or start no matter where you are. Um, the, any information that you can collect will be important to that program. And there's other ways too that are all outlined on our, our site. You provide a lot of really interesting training opportunities and learning opportunities through the foundation. One in particular that really jumped out at me was your assisted uh, metamorphosis training. Mm -hmm. Explain what assisted metamorphosis is. (laughs) Absolutely. That is uh, another word for head starting. And that's basically um, you when you, we, We've we've been assisting gopher frogs through metamorphosis for eleven years now. So that's a Georgia's rarest frog, and they are adorable. But we collect their eggs with permission from the state, of course, and then we rear them up through the whole tadpole stage and through metamorphosis, and then we release them. Sometimes where we got them, sometimes at a, a state. Uh, site and that gets them through the stage where they usually get eaten so you know usually two percent of the gopher frogs will make it through metamorphosis and we can get that up 
to 80 or 90% through assisted metamorphosis. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, it's such a huge difference. Yeah. Fantastic. You do so much through your organization. You change hearts and minds. You help people see things they can no longer unsee. So what's next for you? <laughs> oh, goodness. We've got a lot going. Yeah. <laughs> our, our biggest initiative uh, outside of starting the foundation itself is starting in, in January, which is, what, two weeks from now? where we are just, whew, we are launching our bridge program for conservation research. And we're really proud of this because it's, a, it's an alternative learning model where we can provide mentored research experiences for people that are either graduating from college and not sure what they want to do or not sure if they want to go to graduate school or even graduating high school, and they're not sure if they want to go to college or maybe they want to get uh, some concrete research experience. We have a program that we're launching where people can come from one to three semesters and uh, very hands-on, very mentored, where they can contribute to conservation and also get a lot of great experience. And it's another really magical thing because you know a lot of our partners are loving this idea because it's it's really great and they want to help so they're going to come and teach two weeks on a very specific skill and that just broadens this program and makes it even cooler you know so at first we were going to do hands-on field work experiences on endangered species which is good enough but it just keeps expanding and expanding and we're focusing on so many great things. It's a really well-rounded program and we already have two students. So it's pretty exciting. That is exciting. That is a fantastic program. Thank you. And, you know, my background as yours is is in um, organismal biology. And Uh so that's great. So as you work through your new program and develop your model, you know, you hit the road and go to all the other states and, that's and right. talk about your program. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Uh, I can see that uh, once we prove that this is going to work, and I guess the ultimate proof will eventually be Crystal and I actually getting paid (laughs) but you know i can see it being very valuable uh, to have multiple amphibian foundations throughout the country for Mm -hmm. sure Mm -hmm. wonderful is there anything you feel you need to say or want people to know that we haven't discussed well we want people to reach out to us if they have any questions We definitely love to be a resource for people that want to create more animal critter-friendly backyards, things of that nature, how they can get involved in their own communities if they would like to contribute to the Metro Atlanta Amphibian Monitoring Program if they're here in Atlanta or even kind of work with their own Frog Watch chapter Mm -hmm. uh, where they are is just so important. And just to kind of get a little support because sometimes you feel alone in the world and you know you might care about a little frog that comes to see you outside your door but you might not know the best way to make sure that your yard is friendly for him 
So we want people to know that we would love to answer questions if they have any and just to reach out to us because we're here. To learn more about the Amphibian Foundation, their programs, trainings, and research, visit the show notes for this episode at talaterra.com. Talaterra is a podcast for and about independent educators working in natural resource fields and environmental education. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and colleagues. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Tanya Marion. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I had the opportunity to catch up with Mark and Crystal to find out how they are doing and to discuss their new initiatives. How are they doing? How are they continuing to build community and establish new partnerships from a distance? How are they delivering their unique programming for kids? Let's find out. Welcome, Mark and Crystal. Thank you so much for being back on on the show. Thank you. Thank you. And how have things been going for you? What's new with the at the Amphibian Foundation? I see that you've launched a new initiative. So tell us about that. Yes. Um, all right. Should I? Okay. Yeah, we have actually la- launched a couple, right? Because of uh, mostly in response to the coronavirus and how it uh, directly affected our nonprofit and our ability to carry out our conservation missions, which, you know, can't really afford to any delays, you know, um, with, uh, you know, this also happened right during the breeding season of, of some very critically imperiled species that we were, we were researching. So, you know, I'm, the, the virus has impacted everybody in every nonprofit, but how it affected us specifically is that it really, um, our, our revenue, the way we could support ourselves just took an immediate nosedive uh, and it was very terrifying. So we, we were trying to be uh, respond as quickly as we could. And we came up with a couple of, uh, of initiatives, a new membership program and, uh, and also uh, pivoting our educational programs to an online platform. Uh, those two things have been kind of absorbing all of our time recently. <laughs> yeah. So tell us about the membership program. Sure. Uh, we we had uh, previously we had an annual membership program, and it, it was very nice. And uh, we had uh, some devoted members that contributed annually. the The problem was that at the end of the year, I'm not the I'm not really good at at contacting these people and being like, Hey, would you like to renew your membership or no, that's not my wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also it was, it was non, not very interactive, you know? So when we were trying to uh, re redo our membership program, we looked at the Patreon platform and that really allows us to uh, have a lot more of a relationship with our members um, it's still a very new program. I think we have 18 or 19 members so far, um, but we can put uh, material up and uh, just for our members and we can uh, have conversations with our members and we can offer our members more um, of a relationship 
with our conservation programs and with the foundation and with with our staff and our volunteers. And uh, even though it's only been online for uh, less than a month, I already feel more connected with our members. And, and that is our goal anyway, is to connect people with these conservation initiatives. So, um, and the annual memberships were a little bit more expensive. Like they started at $35 a year and our new one starts at $5. Well, it's a, it's a monthly subscription, but it starts at $5 per month. Oh, wonderful. And how is uh, transferring all your programming online going for you? It's a nightmare. You want to talk, talk about that? <laughs> no, it's just a challenge. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> well, one of our largest initiatives is Critter Camp. And we were so excited to get started with our Critter Camp season on May 26th of 2020. And that was our goal. And that was what we had uh, set aside for our launch date for this year. But of course, with COVID-19, we had a complete change and we had to kind of pivot and think, well, if we're not going to be able to hold in place camps, how are we going to reach our, our kiddos that we usually do reach out to during the summer? And so we actually got word from a few different people that worked with this particular online platform. And uh, we are really proud to be working with, uh, with them this summer. The, the platform that we're going to be working with is OutSchool, and they have a global platform where they reach everyone in the world. And so we're so excited to be able to bring Critter Camp to basically the entire world <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what that could mean for everyone in the Amphibian Foundation for feeling, you know, that we're actually contributing to this um, this global crisis and really growing up that that group of citizen scientists and little ones that want to help protect our amphibians and reptiles around the world. So um, it's all just been about transitioning all of our content onto this online platform. And so we're really hoping that even though the kiddos won't really get a chance to have that hands-on one-on-one time with the animals, they will get a chance to see the animals pretty close up. We have, we're going to have really high quality video cameras so that when our instructors are teaching, they can put the animals right up close so that the kids can see the animals that we're learning about. And we're not only doing an online critter camp, we're also doing an online master herp, master herpetologist course. So um, Mark can talk a little bit more about that, but, (laughs) but it's all just been a a learning experience. It's all new for us. And um, we're just really excited to, to meet the challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's wonderful. And, you know, an out school should also, I would think if you, but you learn on out school, you can apply to distance uh, programming with schools and school districts and and all that. Yeah, that's, that's exciting. That's wonderful. And that is everything you do. I'm a huge fan. So everything that you do is is, is great. And I was wondering about your master uh, herpetologist program, because you were, when we last spoke, you were about to launch that and your bridging, the bridging program. Yes. So um, the, the master herp program uh, online we launched a couple, I don't even remember, 
two or three months ago. I think we got registrations in early February. And so it just happened to, to uh, coincide with the coronavirus. And so it's had a lot of uh, registrations from around the world. So we purposefully made the class asynchronous. So there wasn't a specific time that anyone had to be there. And so when we started to get interest from some pretty cool places, uh, it, it dawned on me that, you know, maybe we should reach out to the herpetological community, the global herpetological community about contributing. And we've had a lot of really positive feedback from herpetologists from all over the world are contributing lectures to this really unique class uh, from all different perspectives, all different continents. It's uh, turning into quite an exciting, pro I'm very excited to get started. And so that, that, that's ended up really good. The, the bridge program, it's been a little bit harder. We, we do have a, a student and that's wonderful. Uh, and we had, I have had a lot of interest, but it, as far as like a time where people want to move or relocate temporarily to Atlanta, it's not the best time for that. I, everything's so scary and, and Atlanta's a coronavirus hotspot. So it's, right. it's been a little challenging, but we do have, um, uh, a lot of great prospects. So I think things are still moving very positively. Uh, it's just not as, as fast as we had hoped. Yeah. But you are uh, masters of uh, partnering, building partnerships. Thank you. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that you have all sorts of new global partnerships through the <laughs> through the HERP program. <laughs> yeah, it's been, I, I got, at one point I just put a, a tweet out and said, if anybody would like to contribute, let me know. And I got a lot of responses from, from even from people I didn't know that mm -hmm. just wanted to contribute so that it feels so good because we can get them to focus on their specific research, you know, mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to be a broad general topic. I think these really specific things are, are fascinating. So I'm sure the students will as well. So out school begins in, you're on out school already. So we are in the process of getting all of our content onto out school. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we plan to go live uh, starting next week. Mm -hmm. We're going to open up registrations so that parents can start um, putting their kids into Critter Camp Online <laughs> and uh, hopefully give those parents a chance to, you know, have some one-on-one -on -one time for themselves, get some things done, get some things checked off their lists, <laughs> and then give the kids a chance to have some critter fun at the same time. What we plan on doing is having, well, depending on the age group, um, but generally we have about a 90 minute block for the regular general critter camp content. And then we have um, electives, as you might say, uh, one hour blocks for electives for the kids to decide what they might want to get a deeper dive into. So um, we have one class that's going to be like care of magical creatures, like a Harry Potter style course where kids can learn about fantastical creatures and the uh, creatures in the real world that actually gave inspiration to those magical creatures. And uh, we're going to do a baby turtles 
course. <laughs> oh, fun, fun. Exactly right. Uh, and then <laughs> a baby snakes course. <laughs> and then just a whole bunch of different things, prehistoric amphibians, prehistoric reptiles. So the kids can really pick and choose the things that are really exciting for them. And they can kind of put them into their cart of critter camp goodness that they want to do for the summer. And um, we're excited to to launch that and we should have camp beginning that week of May 25th and we would last for the whole summer up to 11 weeks. Oh, wonderful. Goodness. And you know, this situation is, it's changed everything of course, but then it's also opened the door for new opportunities and yeah. given everyone an ability to, to come up with some new ways of, engaging with their audiences yeah, and, it, and it sounds like your um you know your baby turtles your baby snakes and all that <laughs> that that is a, a new a new way to a, a new service a new way to connect with your audience exactly something, yeah something new to offer oh that's great <laughs> thank you we wouldn't have we wouldn't have found a way to make the time to get the out school platform going yeah. otherwise for sure yeah and it just kind of opened up this whole new opportunity for us. And we think that our, our foundation can really grow based on it. Thank you for listening today. If you know any young herpetologist who would love to go to Critter Camp, be sure to visit the show notes to learn more. Thank you for your time today. See you next week.